Good morning, everybody. How are y'all? Oh, we're going to have to get some more coffee. All right. I'm excited, so here we go. Um, the last couple of weeks, we started a series called The Greatest Sermon. And we said, hey, that's not me coming up with something creative. That's me copying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so we've walked through the Beatitudes the last couple of weeks, and this morning we're going to finish up part three of our Beatitudes series within that, and we're going to look at a couple of them, and then we're going to try and bring it full circle a little bit. And so, like Megan said, if you missed any of those messages, you can get them on there. And I did want to say one thing real quick. Um, guys, next weekend is going to be an amazing weekend for your wives, for your fiancé, for your friends that are ladies, um, whatever group, category that falls into Come serve with us. Like, I'm going to come up and help out with some stuff. I'm going to be here to help set things up. Um, if you're not watching your kids, come up and just help out with that because it's an amazing weekend. Uh, it's a great way to bless those people. Uh, those, those people. Um, the women in our church, that sounded really... Please come help and just let me preach and stop talking. Okay. Um, <clears throat> several months ago, I was... Uh, I've told you guys, I do some Uber driving. I'm going to write a book at some point on stories from an Uber driver, but... I was picked up a guy at about lunchtime on a Saturday, and uh, he gets in the car, and I always kind of start out, hey, man, how you doing? He goes, man, I'm blessed by the best. And he sat down, I was like, okay, that's not one I've actually heard before. Like, I've heard, I'm good, um, I'm not good. I've heard all those different things, but I never heard someone go just exclaim it out, man, I'm blessed by the best. And then he sat down, and, and we started having a little different conversation, because it was about lunchtime, um, and he said, man, I'm, I'm kind of frustrated. I was like, all right, tell me about that. Uh, he said, man, I'm, I'm usually a pretty productive person, but I'm just now waking up. Man, last night wasn't really me. Uh, I'm kind of frustrated with myself for it. And uh, I was like, okay. And we started talking a little bit. And I realized in that moment, he didn't really feel blessed by the best. Like, that was just an expression. Like, being blessed is one of those things that, if we're not careful, we throw that around so much. Like, hashtag blessed. And, you know, anytime something comes up, well, hashtag blessed really at times means hashtag not unhappy. And happiness being based on circumstance, right? We say, okay, it's a good day, so I'm blessed. But do we really understand what that means, or are we just throwing it around as a statement? Or, you know, hashtag blessed really means, no, I feel popular today. Like somebody liked something that I put up. I put up this beautiful picture of the food I'm eating, and I got a lot of likes. It made me feel good about myself, and therefore happiness is circumstantial, and I'm blessed. But blessed is something deeper than that. And so I started talking with this guy. And man, he started unpacking a little bit the day before and said, man, man, it sounds like you know kind of a little bit opposite of that, right? And he said, yeah. And as we were talking, he just said, hey, man, why are you doing this? I said, well, this kind of helps pay for some vacation in the summertime. That way I don't have to put it on a credit card. And he goes, oh, like Dave Ramsey. I went, yes, just like Dave Ramsey. And we used that, opened up this conversation. By the end of the drive, this guy goes, hey, man, are, are you like a pastor or something? I said, yeah, you're pretty intuitive, buddy. I am. Um, he said, well, man, I feel like I'm supposed to be in this car with you. And he said, man, some of the stuff we're talking about, like, what do I do with that? And from there, I said, well, look, man, you're going to sit here for a second and get a, about a 30-second sermon. And I was like, I just, I don't want to tell you what I think, because that's what you ask. I want to tell you what Scripture think, said, not thinks. I want to tell you what Scripture says. And I started quoting some verses to it. And when he got out, he's like, man, I appreciate that. I was like, man, I appreciate you. Because the thing is, when it comes to being blessed, if we really want to be blessed, like Scripture talks about it's not about these circumstantial feelings. It's not that, hey, man, today I got a present, and that f makes me feel blessed. When we follow Scripture and when we put it into practice and we see this as more than just words on a piece of paper, and we say, man, this is alive and this is real, and when I follow it, I truly find a message of being blessed. 
And as we've looked at the Beatitudes, these supreme blessedness that Jesus is talking about, he's going to wrap it up with a couple that some of them we can kind of wrap our mind around, and some of them it may be a little bit difficult for us as we wrap up the Beatitudes today. But we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 9. You can follow along on the screen or if you've got your Bible with you. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, Jesus continues and he says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now I want to put again a little foundation within this, because sometimes these are so, they seem so straightforward and then at times they seem really abstract. So what is a peacemaker? Not a pacemaker, a peacemaker. Not a cheesemaker, a peacemaker. Like, this is one where sometimes, like, that's not a word we use often in our vernacular, right? That's not one that we just throw out there very often. We understand the idea of peace, but what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Because there's a subtle difference here. Sometimes I'll hear this misquoted as, Blessed are the peacekeepers, for they should be called children of God or sons of God. It's not peacekeeper. See, there's slight differences between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. Now, in some ways, it's not like they're like a peacekeeper is bad. They, they share some things in common. Both peacekeepers and peacemakers both have a high value of peace, and that's a good thing. Peacekeepers and peacemakers can look all throughout Scripture, and all throughout Scripture, saturated in it. You'll find over and over and over again this idea of bringing peace to people. Peace be with you. T- Paul talks about it. Peter talks about it. James talks about it. All of them talk about this, and peacemakers and peacekeepers both look at that and say, hey, we have a high value of peace. We understand that peace is better than conflict. We understand that peace is better than war. We understand those things. They also look at it and say, hey, within society as a whole, both sides would look at this and say, hey, within our society, within our culture, within our community, within our families, within our circles, we desire peace. They both look at that and say, we want peace within our society. We have a high value of it. But then there are some subtle differences. See, peacekeepers will value compromise as a virtue. And compromise doesn't really lead to peace. Compromise can just lead to a temporary ceasefire, right? Like, there's times where you compromise, and there's times where we laugh about compromise, and it's okay. Like, I know my wife is violently offended by anything related to seafood. And so when she says, where do you want to go eat? I understand already that question has compromise in it, right? Like, I can't say, let's go eat at the fish place because that would just be wrong. And so I pick a place that may also have a fish option and we can go there. That's the kind of compromise we can laugh about. But there's a lot of times in relationships, in parenting, and work, where a peacekeeper will say, hey, as long as we can compromise and this doesn't blow up into something bigger than what I can handle or what scares me, then that's okay. But compromise doesn't really deal with the issue. It just kind of pushes it down for a temporary ceasefire. And then it festers back up, and the problem's never really solved. Compromise is not always the answer. But they see compromise as a virtue, and a peacekeeper, this is where it can be dangerous. They will sacrifice righteousness for peace. And what happens there is compromise becomes such a big thing, and the desire to push conflict out of the way that will go, hey, we take the righteous side out, and the righteous side is what really changes things. Because we want peace so much. And what happens there is it's not really peace. It's, again, just pushing it under the rug and quieting it down for a while. 
That's why when it comes to something as big as like racial inequality, years ago it was said, hey, from a peacekeeper standpoint, it said, hey, let's just segregate everything. That makes everything better, right? We'll just segregate schools. We'll segregate our society. And now there's peace. That wasn't peace. That was just compromise. Jim Crow laws, anything like that. That was a peacekeeper trying to say, here's my idea of peace, but it's not fixing the issue. Whereas a peacemaker, what Scripture is talking about, one, they walk in humility. They don't pride themselves and puff themselves up. They look at a situation and go, hey, sometimes I'm going to have to walk into this in humility. But at the same time, they understand that repentance is necessary for peace. You want true peace. It has to start with repentance. And that's why peacemaking is a divine work. It's a divine work when he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus Christ made real peace possible, right? Jesus Christ goes to the cross, lives a sinless life, lays his life down on a cross so that he would make the sacrifice necessary for you and I to experience grace and mercy and forgiveness. And when that repentance comes in, you can truly understand peace because Jesus Christ made the way for that. That's why when Jesus walks up to his disciples after he's been resurrected, he looks at them and he says a very common Jewish phrase. He says, peace be with you. It was a greeting. But when he said it that time, it meant something completely and utterly different because for the first time, Jesus is looking at people and he says, peace be with you. And it's possible. It's possible because of the sacrifice that I made, because I laid down my life, because I defeated sin and death. You can experience peace unlike you've ever felt before. Not temporary peace, not, oh, my bills aren't that much this month, not that kind of temporary peace, not, oh, I feel pretty good today, but who knows what tomorrow's going to hold, not that kind of peace. It's this eternal peace that comes through Jesus Christ. And when he looks at the disciples for the first time, they understand peace is possible. And it's possible because of righteousness. It means something different suddenly. So the big question becomes, before we even get really into the message, and do you know what that peace looks like? A lot of times we talked about being content. We talked about satisfaction within the Beatitudes. So many times people are looking for satisfaction. They're also looking for peace. There's not as many people out there just actively looking for conflict. Now, you, everybody's got that one friend, right? You know, it's like we can't take him anywhere. But most people go, you know what? I'd rather just not argue over something. But they become peacekeepers and not peacemakers. True peace only comes through Jesus Christ. And so if you look at your life, and it wasn't a whole room full of people, it was just a couple of us talking, and we said, hey, how do you feel about peace right now? Some of you may look at your life and go, it is not peaceful. The turmoil that I have inside my heart is unnerving. The angst that I have over what comes next is unnerving. Like, I, I can't even comprehend what peace might look like. Well, I don't just mean peace and situational. I mean a deep heart peace. We're deep inside your soul where we talked about, man, God said eternity in man's heart. We're always searching, trying to figure out what's going to fill that. What's going what's to finally bring peace to my life? It's only through Jesus Christ. It's a divine work that he makes possible. And when you know that, you know what peace looks like. But if you're wrestling with that, don't leave here today wondering. Grab one of our elders. Grab somebody on staff. Say, hey, I need to know what real peace looks like. And I will tell you right now, real peace only comes through Jesus Christ. And when someone has that, the result of that, we become peacemakers. Not peacekeepers, we become divine, believing peacemakers. And we become peacemakers 
in pretty much any area that we can get our hands on. So if we're walking in Christ and we see that, yes, I'm a peacemaker, that bleeds over into areas as big as like marriage, where it's not about just compromise. Yeah, we'll compromise sometimes. But a peacemaker within marriage will look at a situation and go, hey, how can we be more Christ-centered when it comes to this? Man, we keep arguing over this one thing. It keeps coming up. We keep fighting over it. It's the thing that nags at both of us. Maybe we stop looking at it from butting head standpoint and going, hey, what does Scripture say about this? What does it say we need to do to reconcile this? What does it say that I need to do personally to maybe be the first one to say, hey, I was wrong here. I want to make this right. See, peacemakers within marriage will love your spouse and love Jesus enough to look at him and say, hey, what do I do that annoys you? Now, let's, let's think for a second. That's a loaded question, right? Yeah. Some of you on your phone may have like a list in case that ever comes up. Oh, let me tell you the ways. Like, no. But you'll, you'll care about your spouse. You'll care about your marriage enough to say, hey, I'm opening the door here. What do I do that annoys you? Now, the reciprocation of that is we both need to be open to where it's, hey, what do I do that annoys you? And we talk about those things. And it doesn't become a headbutting thing. It says, hey, we acknowledge this. Let's work on it. Peacekeepers will ask hard questions seeking righteousness in marriage. Peacekeepers will look at parenting and say, how can I impart to my children peace? And again, these are not always easy things. There's times where I look at my boys and I'm like, look, I'm not a, I'm not a peacemaker. I'm the peacekeeper right now. Hey, face is off limits. Fight it out. Go for it. Like, go. But no, the bigger thing would be to look at that and say, hey, man, how can I impart the peace that comes through Jesus Christ to my children? What can I do to teach them in situations where instead of seeing dad get really frustrated, and i got to watch that at times, I'll be honest, even this week I caught myself, I looked at my son and I could tell he knows I'm mad, and not in a healthy way, in a way that I'm starting to step over that bound a little bit. What can I do to pull back in that moment and say, how do I make this teachable? How do I teach my sons? How do we teach our sons and daughters what true peace through Jesus Christ looks like? We do it in our community. We look around our community and say, hey, what's not right? And through a relationship with Christ, through righteousness spilling over in us, we look at areas and we say, hey, that shouldn't be that way. What can I do to bring peace into that area? Not just calm, but righteousness and peace into an area that's broken and jacked up. And we look at social injustice and we look at all those different areas and say, how do I play a part in that? We look beyond that and we look to the nations. Do you know one of the craziest things that's going to bring, there ain't always going to be peace on earth. Scripture's clear about that. There's, there's going to be one day in a new heaven, a new earth. But across the nations, as the gospel goes out, you know what's going to change some corrupt governments? You know what's going to change some corrupt people? Righteousness. Do you know what the largest Christian nation by 2030 is going to be? Probably China. Right now, in a government that says, hey, we don't acknowledge this, we don't support this, they're closing churches down, guess what? It's hard to stop the gospel. Missionaries have gone there, they have preached, people have gone in. I've got friends that have gone to teach English, and really what they're doing is sharing the gospel. They're using the Bible to teach people English, and it's impacting thousands and thousands of people. There are so many underground churches there, it's unbelievable. 
And turns out they have a kind of big population too. And so as that goes out, by the year 2030, the largest Christian country in the world is probably going to be on the other side of the world. And guess what's going to happen? Eventually you're not going to be able to stop that. Eventually you can't quiet righteousness. And people are going to go, hey, the social injustices that are happening here, we're going to do something about that. Whenever we preach righteousness and we bring peace in that way, it has an unbelievable impact across the globe. And then we also have the opportunity when it comes to preaching the gospel. I want my friends, I want my family, I want my coworkers, I want my church, I want all those around me to know what real peace looks like. The question becomes, do we care enough about those in our lives and our circles and our families? Are we broken enough over them to look at them and go, man, I will be a peacemaker there. And to be a peacemaker, I'm going to have to preach righteousness into this situation. I'm not going to back away from it. I'm not going to be ashamed of it. I'm going to preach the gospel and I'm going to leave the results to God. I'm going to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm just going to watch what God does. And when we do those things, remember in the Beatitudes, there's always do this, and then there's the flip side to it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, in some of your translation, it may say children of God. And that may seem like a very subtle thing. Like in the King James, it translated peacemakers, children of God. It's this Greek word, huos. And yes, it can mean children, but the fun thing is, over the years since that was translated, and that, that was a great translation, I'm not knocking that at the time, like that was translated into the common language, and Taoists did read it that way. Um, since then, we've done a little bit of digging and archaeology, and what happens is we find other manuscripts, and we see that word used more as sons of God, and what that means, sons or daughters. Son carries a little more weight than children. In biblical language, when you said, this is my son, it meant that he was a partaker in your character. It was more than just a child. You look at that and say, you have become a partaker in my character, whether that character be good or bad. But when we look at this, there is no bad. There will be sons of God. You are going to begin to take on the characteristics of your father your Father that is loving, your Father that is gracious, your Father that is compassionate, your Father that is merciful, your Father that reached down to a broken people and said, I'm going to take you out of this. I'm going to make you into a new creation. Whenever we become peacemakers, we begin to take on that characteristic and people see that and it impacts the globe. So blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And look in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 10, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now this one, as he wraps up the Beatitudes, this is one from a Western, evangelical, Texas, Abilene standpoint, is hard for most of us, and we need to acknowledge that. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, from the dawn of Christianity, persecution has existed. Persecution looks a little bit different for us now than it did back then. Persecution looks different depending on time and location. 
Like if we go through the timeline of Christianity, even before Christ is crucified, what's happening? He's experiencing persecution. He would go into cities and people would look at him and go, hey, we know your parents. How can, how can you be this person? They would persecute him. The religious leaders actively tried to kill him a number of times before they finally did it. Even before the cross, persecution was there. Immediately after the cross, the early church begins. And man, one of the hallmarks is these people were highly and violently persecuted. That was Paul's whole mantra. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He'd receive letters. He would go to these places, find Christians, destroy their families, tear them apart, murder them. Like, that was the reality of early church. And that was just day like two. By the year 60, the Emperor Nero is blaming Christians for a fire in Rome and using that as an opportunity to continue persecution, to continue execution, to continue seizure of lands, and that's just by the year 60 A.D. Later on, another emperor named Diocletian went through what was called a great persecution, and at the time, he was kind of a military leader, and they were losing, so what do you do? You blame someone else, and he said, look, we got all these Christians around here now, and they're not worshiping Mars, they're not worshiping Jupiter, they're not making sacrifices, therefore, I'm losing all these battles. He just wasn't really good at what he did, and so his idea was, you're either going to sacrifice to the Roman gods, or we're going to kill you all. And man, they went through and persecuted these believers, and these believers laid down their lives as martyrs with pretty much no shame. Skip forward a couple hundred years, that area was now a Christian, I I use that loosely, but Rome had become a Christian nation. And that whole kind of Mediterranean area about the 7th century went from being Roman-occupied to the Turkish and Ottoman empires come in. And the first thing they do is they start wiping out Christians. They gave them a different status in society. It was almost like an early holocaust. They got labeled differently. They couldn't serve in different areas. Property taken, lives taken. You look in the French and Russian Revolution, one of the hallmarks of those was they tried to stamp out religion. In the French Revolution, they came in, they seized all the church's property, took all the priests out and said, you're either going to swear allegiance to the country or you can't do your job. They said, well, we're not going to do it. A lot of them were executed, beheaded. Russian Revolution, they tried to stamp out all aspects of religion and just become an atheist state. Half a million Christians died during that just simply because of their faith. That's modern times. Now you look at location. Our location right now is pretty safe. Now I understand like the day and age that we live in, there's a reality that things happen. We acknowledge that. That's why we've got a team that does a great job of monitoring it. But you head across the world into what they call the 1040 window, There's 100,000 Christians dying for their faith every single year. 100,000. You put all the seats you want in Cowboy Stadium, and it'll seat about 100,000 people. That's our brothers and sisters that are dying across the world because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They understand persecution. Overall, worldwide, there's 1 to 200 million Christians who are denied fundamental human rights because of where they live and the faith that they have. They live in areas that are very opposed to Christianity. They live in areas where if you convert to Christianity, you're going to be kicked out of your family at best. Literally, some of them have on their national laws, if you convert to Christianity, you're executed. And some of those people say, I don't care. I know what Christ has done for me, and they convert, and then they are martyred. Roughly 80% of the religious discrimination that happens on planet earth today happens to Christians. So this is kind of a tough one for us to tackle because some people have written, well, persecution doesn't exist anymore in the evangelical world. Well, uh, 
sure seems like it's happening. But for us, it's kind of hard because I haven't experienced persecution like that. I've experienced persecution, but not in the way that a lot of our brothers and sisters across the globe are. So when we read this, one, we need to actively be praying for them. You got people you won't meet till the other side of heaven. Man, they love Jesus deeply and they are fighting for it. They're in churches where they know the wrong knock happens on the door and it could lead to all their property being seized or their family being killed. So when I read this, I'm reminded, man, we need to pray for the big C church, global church. But man, we read this and it seems like it's harder for us to understand because persecution is just different for us, but it's a reality And if we are truly living righteousness, you and I are going to face it in some form or fashion. Now, here's the thing. If you're going to be persecuted, make sure you're persecuted for the right thing. What I mean by that is it does not say blessed are those who are persecuted. Because a lot of people could suddenly go, I am blessed. Because there's lots of wrong reasons to be persecuted, right? I know people that feel persecuted within Christianity because, quite frankly, they're just oppressive. They're a jerk. That's their spiritual gift. I had a boss one time. He's like, man, it feels like you guys just don't support me or anything. We're like, well, we're struggling with it because you're kind of a jerk. And I, that's probably cleaned up. Like, sometimes people are just oppressive or angry and things like that, and they feel like, oh, I'm being persecuted. No, it's, you're being persecuted for the wrong thing. Some people are insulting to others, and they feel persecuted in that. I'll never forget during Easter every year when I was at A&M, they would, I forget what group it was, they would bring this speaker in. He was hellfire and brimstone, and he would stand on a pedestal, and he would tell people, man, I'm persecuted because people keep coming and attacking me. I'm like, yeah, because you're an insulting jerk. Like, I walked by him at one point, and he's just literally just pointing at random people, just yelling things out. You're this, and you're this. And I walk back, and you're a pervert. And I'm like, and you're about to have a bloody nose. Like, what's going on? Like, you know nothing about me. You're just insulting everyone. Like, you're not exactly showing the gospel here you're just being a jerk and yeah you feel oppressed by that some feel some people feel oppressed when they do things that are wrong and they feel persecuted when they do things that are wrong man i used to go to that one church but man they just kept giving me a hard time or the fact that i smoke crack well <laughs> come on like let's let's talk about that a little bit like sometimes people will try and just justify persecution in a lot of different areas it doesn't say blessed are those who are persecuted it says Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Righteousness being conforming to God's will and living as Christ lived. You do those things and you will, and it may not be a physical thing, you'll face persecution in some way. Somebody will say something. Somebody will demean you in a little bit. Somebody will go, hey, yeah, they're a Christian, but they take it too far. Like, you'll face persecution if you're really living for righteousness because here's what happens. You start living in righteousness, you start living as Christ lived, and it begins to expose darkness in people, and people do not like that. It's just a fact of human, humanity. Christ came to the world as a light, and the darkness hated him. So you start conforming to God's will, and you start living as Christ lived, and people, they don't always like that, and two things happen. One, repentance. I got a chance to talk to a guy this week, and we started talking a little bit, and he was struggling with a lot of things. And he wasn't prepared to deal with them. And uh, as we're talking, man, I started sharing scripture and started sharing a little bit of hope and truth. And man, I watched this dude, I, the, the Holy Spirit just start wrecking him. And I was like, see you later. <laughs> like, I'm just going to let God do what he's going to do with you. 
The other part is persecution. There's either going to be repentance or there's going to be pushback. I'll be honest. I cheated on my taxes when I was in college. And as I say that right now, all these go online. We may need to edit that one. I don't want to get audited. But here's what I mean by that. Um, it, it wasn't a lot. Um, I was a server in college. Like we got paid in cash. At the end of the night, you were responsible to go in and put how much you got in tips so that taxes could be taken out. For about a year, man, there wasn't anybody at that restaurant putting what they really made, right? How much you make tonight? Oh, it was a rough night. I made $7. <laughs> like, why do you have a $100 bill in your pocket? Crazy, huh? Um, I got convicted about that at one point. And I started putting the real amount in. The first time somebody saw that, they were like, why are you doing that? I was like, well, man, I just, I, I know this is stealing. Like, we've got to call it what it is. Like, I'm not, I'm not being honest here. I'm lying about it. I'm stealing. And they were like, <laughs> okay. And uh, I caught some flack for it. Oh, well. Like, I felt better at the end of the night. Because in the midst of all that, you got Jesus going, rejoice and be glad as you're persecuted. That's a tough one, right? How do we rejoice in persecution? Because most people like, I like compliments. I like encouragement. I just don't know a lot of people that are like, you know what I like today? Persecution. I don't know a lot of people that wake up in the morning and go, God, give me grace and persecution today. Like, that's just, that's a tough prayer, right? Because what if he does it? Hmm? What if he answers that one? But yet, in Scripture, he's going, hey, you rejoice in those moments. You rejoice when people, they may not physically attack you, but he says, hey, they're going to utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. People are going to talk about you. They're going to slander your name. They're going to slander your God. You rejoice in those moments. How do we do that? A couple things. One, when you're in persecution, it shows your identity in Christ. If you find yourself being persecuted, it's a pretty good telltale sign that you are living as Christ called you to live. Because if you weren't, you would avoid that. When we find ourselves being persecuted, and persecution will come, whatever form it may be, it's a pretty telltale sign that, hey, man, my identity is not in myself. My identity is in Christ. And people are starting to see that. And it's starting to push back against darkness. And again, two things are going to happen. There's either going to be repentance or there's going to be persecution. But in that moment, let it encourage you a little bit that people are seeing an identity in you that is not what used to be, but what is now. So it shows your identity in Christ. It also shows the radiancy of Christianity. If you find yourself being persecuted, Maybe you take a step back about you and you look at the bigger picture. Because years ago, as communists were taking over China, there was a couple of missionaries there. Man, they're loving on people. They were the people planting the seeds towards 2030, and I don't even know if they knew it. They were broke. They had nothing. All of their funding had been taken away. They weren't receiving funds that were being given to them from outside support. They had nothing. In their little shack, they had a stool. That was all the furniture that they had outside of a wood-burning stove. The only time they lit that stove was at night to boil rice. What kind of rice? Rice. Like white, fluffy rice. They didn't even have fuel for that. He would have to go and collect kind of the Oregon Trail-style fuel, if you know what I'm talking about. And that's what they used to light that fire, burn it for a little bit, have just enough food not to starve. And the husband said, man, I found myself being frustrated. Why is all of this being taken away? 
And we're trying to do a good work. We're trying to, you know, we're trying to help people. We're trying to share the gospel. Why is all this being taken away? Why are we being, being persecuted by this government? But then he started noticing all these other people around him saw his situation. And they saw that, man, these people are still here. These people still seem to have hope. And he said, I realized in that moment, my persecution was showing the radiancy of Christianity. People were coming to our church. People were coming to hear the gospel because they saw something different. They said, man, everyone else is doom and gloom. You still seem to have hope. What is that? And they were able to preach the gospel. So sometimes when we find ourselves in persecution, it shows the radiancy of Christianity. Also, don't forget this. There's a promise reward. It says, for your reward is great in heaven. Not so much on earth, although reward's pretty good here too, man. I, I love living and being able to glorify God. But he said, for those that are persecuted, your reward is going to be great in heaven. One, it's going to be for all eternity. Two, it's going to be beyond what you can even comprehend right now. That's why I always tell people, never think of heaven as your best day of golf, because that's still not that good for me. <laughs> like, it's more than that. Like, if you're basing eternity on something that you look at right now and go, this makes me happy, we're still in a broken, sinful world, it's going to be so much more than that. And he looks at these people being persecuted and says, great is your reward on that side for all eternity. And then, if you are being persecuted, and look, some of you right now, man, you may do, some, you may do a Bible study at work and get scoffed at. People may, may say a lot of mean, hurtful things. You may be around people that say things about your God, and you go, man, that, that, that's, the, that's the persecution part. I just don't like that. I mean, that's the whole reason David stood up and killed a giant. He's like, man, why are y'all letting him talk about my God that way? But some of you probably are walking through some kind of persecution right now. Let me encourage you this. Be reminded that Jesus is near. You ever walk through persecution, be reminded that Jesus Christ is near. There's no better example of people who understood persecution than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Old Testament story, Israelites had been captured, taken to Babylon. They said, hey, you're going to worship something other than your God. And they said, no, we're not. And they said, well, we're going to kill you. And they said, okay, so be it. If God wants to save us, he'll save us. If he wants us to die in that fire, we'll die in that fire. And we shared the story recently, man. They open up these doors to this furnace, this huge, like, probably brick kennel. Unbelievably hot. It was so hot when they opened the doors, it killed the guys that opened it. That was the heat wave that came out. And then they took these boys and forcibly threw them in there. And then the king's watching. And he goes, hey, how, many, how many people we throw in there? Get the mathematician out here. <laughs> we threw three, sir. Why do I see four? And why does he look like the son of God? There's these kids. These were kids facing ultimate persecution. And there was no one nearer to them than Jesus Christ. So as you walk through persecution, you walk through the fire, never forget that Christ is with you. And here's the final thing. As we kind of close all this up, and I'll do this quickly. As we walk through the Beatitudes, how to be blessed, there's also another picture that happens in them. The Beatitudes are a picture of discipleship. It's a picture of discipleship. Because here's what it looks like. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That acknowledgement that, hey, I can't do this on my own. There's nothing in me that can save myself. I need something more. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I mourn over my sin, and I find comfort through Jesus Christ. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I realize I am not as big as I think I am. I need a Savior bigger than me. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When I begin to chase after God, I have a relationship. I've been made new. When I begin to chase after Him and hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the things that are like Him, I begin to find satisfaction. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As I grow in my faith, I understand I have been forgiven of much, and therefore I can forgive others. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's this continual growing and saying, hey, I want my heart of stone taken out. I want a heart of flesh. Blessed are the peacemakers and begin to share the peace that comes with Jesus Christ. And blessed are those who persecute it because I know it's not about me. I want to follow him in all situations. This is a picture of discipleship. You've got a person going from something that was cold and calloused and dead to a sense of spiritual maturity that says, hey, I will even face persecution from the outside world. Where are you at on that? Like when you read the Beatitudes, where are you walking on that path? Maybe you're going, hey, I, I, I'm still spiritually bankrupt. I need something. That's, that's the beginning. That's the person saying, hey, I need Jesus Christ in my life. I want to turn from my life. I want to follow him. Maybe you're growing, but there's some areas where you're struggling with hunger and thirst. Let's deal with them. Maybe you struggle with forgiveness. Remember that blessed are the merciful. As we look through this, we want to find ourselves further along than at the beginning. And through God's grace, we can. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, if there is someone here today that's early on that and they just go, I mean, I just don't know what it looks like to follow him. I pray that your spirit would be all over them. God, they would know that it's only through Jesus Christ that they can experience forgiveness and grace and be made into something new. And God, that's a beautiful thing. We want to celebrate that, and if that's you, you're out there today, and you don't know what that looks like, grab one of us. We love to share the gospel. And God, for all of us, I pray that we won't just be peacekeepers. We will be peacemakers, taking the peace that has been given to us and show that to the world. God, that even in the face of persecution, we will know that you are there, and that will be the most comforting warm blanket to our souls that we can have. God, continue to grow us. We love you. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.